So chapter 46 is a last-ditch appeal to Israel to turn back to the Lord. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying that they're going to go into captivity, and he wants them to turn. They don't actually go into captivity for about 100 more years, but they're well on their way of going there. Now, they are the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been overwhelmed and conquered by the Assyrians and scattered. And uh, the Assyrians would scatter people and not keep them as a unit. And then they would send other foreign peoples in their place to to mix their religion and and, and the people and the customs. And so people would, would no longer have a national identity. And so there was 10 tribes that inherited the, or that uh, lived in the north that we knew as Israel. And today, you know what they're called? The lost 10 tribes of Israel. Because Assyria was so good at scattering them. Now, the thing is, we call them that because their, their records were destroyed and they were scattered all over the place and they became the Samaritans, part Jew, part something else, you know, and, and various things. But God knows exactly where they are. He knows who they are and and where they are. And it's not that they forgot that they were Jews, but they just really can't trace their lineage uh, specifically to any particular tribe. And so he's calling them back. And, And I want you to know this idea of God calling us back is something for us to consider because you may be the super Christian and, and your walk towards God and your, your, your growth in the Lord is just a straight line up. And, and you might be that odd one out. But for me, it's kind of like this. You know, <laughs> you know it's, and, and I get down here and I start to slide down. It's, it's, it's a recommitment. And it isn't a recommitment to salvation. And it may not be anything super drastic, but I know it in my spirit. And I know when I start getting snappy. And I know when I'm completely distracted away from the things of the Lord. I know when I'm trying to trust in something for peace other than the Lord. And it's pretty obvious. And that's what I'm doing this. It's not that I'm out, you know, um, uh, you know, robbing people or something. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's not as obvious. But it's still that the Lord wants me on this trajectory. And I do this. And so the idea of, of returning to the Lord and, and repenting is... It's a continual idea, and the idea of repenting, so many people see it as this horrible idea because you've got to admit you're wrong. But if you've been a part of our Tuesday prayer meetings, so much of what we do in our Tuesday prayer meetings is like when we, when we read a scripture, we, we repent first, and then we start praying for others, and then we start praying even you know, beyond the church and outside. And I tell you what, it's such a refreshing place to just have an absolutely clear slate before God. You know, and it's, it's just a great way to live. And, you know, the Lord lifts up the humble and the humble are the ones to be able to say, ah, you know, I got a, I got a little tweaking I need to do here uh, in, in my soul. And so he's calling them back to himself and he's going to remind them of who he is. And then 47 deals with Babylon where I got my my title, Babylon in the Crosshairs. The Lord is going to deal with this nation that dealt in a very evil way with his people, the nation of Israel. Verse verse 1 of chapter 46. Bel has bowed down 
and Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They, they stooped over, they have bowed together, they could not rescue the burden, but they themselves have gone into captivity. And so he's speaking to the Jews, but he's talking about the Babylonian gods. Now again, the Babylonians are on the rise. The Assyrians are declining in their power, and the Babylonians are on the rise. And he's talking about these gods that are already known. They're out there. The Jews were good at worshiping other people's gods. <laughs> and so they knew about Bel and they knew about Nebo. And these gods are going to be bowed down because they're not really gods. They're made up gods and they're, they're idols, right? Now, the Lord had prophesied through Isaiah the name of the Persian king that was going to set the people free. Now, what's interesting is he's prophesying about Babylon and their gods. And, and then Isaiah also mentions the next kingdom beyond Babylon through Isaiah. And it's such a wonderful thing that we have the sure word of prophecy in the scriptures because he's prophesying very far out, right? And, and he's saying of these, um, he's saying to the generations that, that would read this verse over a hundred years later, 140 years later, he's speaking of the gods of the Babylonians being bowed down, being humbled. And so Bel was the city god of Babylon, or in a sense, the patron saint of Babylon. You know, if they had their chariots, they'd have the little bell on their front of their chariot, right? And uh, Nebo uh, was another major city in the kingdom, and he was, in a sense, the patron saint of that. Nebo shows up in the name Nebuchadnezzar. Right, And people's names were named after that. And Daniel's name was Belteshazzar, or the god Bel. And so people would name themselves after these gods. Much in the same way, if your name is Michael or Daniel, L, at the end of your name, refers to God. Right, And so they would name themselves after their gods. Now, Isaiah had seen, because the, the Assyrians were in power, and they were trying to, to hold back these Babylonians. And so early on, when they would attack the Babylonian cities, Isaiah knew about people having to evacuate their cities. You know what they do? They'd pack up their gods and bring them with them. <laughs> right? Like, what kind of god is that that you can pack up and walk, walk with you? And his point is, these gods cannot defend themselves because they're not gods at all. They can't defend themselves at all. And then he prophesies eventually that these gods are absolutely going to be disgraced. And so Isaiah is, in a sense, mocking idolatry by showing the ridiculousness of gods who cannot save themselves. Now, if they can't save themselves, what, they, what can they do for you? Nothing. Right? It's like, you know, I want to I, I, I wanna run a marathon, you know, and so I, I, I find, a, find a guy that has never exercised his whole life, and I say, train me. <laughs> you know, he's not going to be able to do much. Well, he might have studied, and he could do something, but what can a false god do? Absolutely nothing, but just give false hope.
And so he talks about these gods and he prophesies that these gods are going to be radically humbled. And he goes on to verse three and he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I shall be the same. And even to your graying years, I shall bear you. I have done it, and I shall carry you, and I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. One, one thing that's good to remember, because we do pass through time, and as we pass through time, our perspective changes. But one thing every so often I have to remind myself is this. I've planned it, surely it will come to be. Verse 12, listen to me, you stubborn-minded. Sometimes they're stiff-necked. Here, they're stubborn-minded. Who are far from righteous. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. So often we, we use the term, oh, I got pretty far from God. No, you didn't. In your mind, you got far from God. God is just waiting for you to turn. The Jews act like they got far from God. Nope, he's right there with them. Just turn. He's right there. He used to watch an old cartoon with a, with a, a bloodhound dog. And I think it was, it was set in Canada. And I think the dog was a Canadian Mountie or something. It was a cartoon, okay? But I just love the cartoon because this guy would run so hard and be sweating and he'd climb up to the top of a mountain and this dog would go, hello. You know, he'd just show up and say hello. He was everywhere. And God is there, not because he hates us or he wants to bust us. One, he's, he, he's ever-present, but because he loves us and he's just waiting for us to turn. A bruised reed, he does not break. Smoldering flax, he does not quench. And for the heart that is willing to turn, he is always there just waiting. You remember how, how evil the people were that, uh, that uh, Jonah had sought to rebuke. He didn't even want to rebuke them because he thought, God, you're a merciful God. If they turn, you will forgive them. And that's exactly what happened. And it's interesting because in the history of this people, they erased this particular king because he didn't worship their false gods. And so it's hard to find him. There's indications that he's there and there's a gap that shows that he was there in their history. But this king turned, this extremely evil king, and perhaps, again, Nebuchadnezzar himself, a very vicious, very vicious ruler over his armies. And he wiped out a ton of people. But if he turned in Daniel chapter 4, like it looks like he did, he's going to be in heaven. Because God was right there just waiting for him to turn. And that's just an incredible thing to see someone's heart turn. But God is waiting for them to turn. So he says, I bring near, in verse 13, my righteousness. That's a good verse, right? I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. There's no hoops to jump through to get there. You turn. I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. If you turn, you can be blessed. Now, verse 
1 of chapter 47 goes on. It says, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, strip off the skirt, uncover the leg, cross the rivers. Your nakedness will be uncovered. Your shame also will be exposed. I will take vengeance and I will not spare a man. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you will no more be called the Queen of Kingdoms. And he's speaking of the Babylonian kingdom, and he's speaking of the Babylonian kingdom in its later days. And he's declaring to them that you're going to be humbled and humiliated after you are conquered. You're not going to rule and reign forever. And he calls them the virgin or the pure daughter of Babylon. He calls them tender and delicate. And they were once called the queen of kingdoms. And understand, this is kind of the history of nations. Normally in the beginning, they're hungry, they're disciplined, and they're driven. And it brings great success. And then what happens is they start to rest on their victories. They rest on their reputation. Their character is no longer hardworking, driven, and determined, and it becomes soft and privileged. And then they eventually become overrun. And so the Babylonians, a few generations removed from Nebuchadnezzar, are those that are indulgent. We know that the night that they were, the, the city of Babylon was actually overrun by the Medo Persian Empire. We have this guy, Belshazzar, having a party with concubines and, and, and many different wives and his officials, and they're all drunk, and there's something like a Mardi Gras happening there. They're just going crazy. So much so that they're overwhelmed by Cyrus and his forces, and history tells us that there wasn't even a battle. They just took over the city. Because these people had grown so soft and so presumptuous on their past successes. And this is, this is what happens with kingdoms. This is what happens even with us. We have great success and then all of a sudden we start to rest and everything. And then we have to, we have to wake up, right? And very often, you know, we think, oh God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow so much in the peace times. Just give me a peace time. But sometimes we need a few trials to pop up every once in a while to wake us back up and get us back into shape, right? Because we let things go and we, we rest in our blessings. And so he says, no longer will you be called tender and delicate. Their veil would be removed, their skirt would be stripped off, their nakedness would be revealed, their shame would be exposed. And they would become slaves of the next kingdom. And they would perform menial work. But understand, even though the Babylonians themselves were very vicious towards Israel, and they were, God wants to punish them for that. Now, God did use them, but they were willing vessels. 
And in their willingness to be harsh to the peoples they were conquering, they went beyond what God would have them do because they were such willing vessels and they were very harsh with the Jews that they had captured. And so God would judge them because they were extra harsh on his people, even though he was using them to punish them. You see what I'm saying? They went above and beyond. And they're going to be judged for that by God. And so their children and the following generations are also going to be judged, as it says here. So they didn't leave a legacy of holiness. They left a legacy of excess. And in their case, it was excess punishment, extra, extra viciousness, extra brutality. And so this generation that comes along and is cruising along on the successes of its predecessors, they become indulgent and they start sinning in different ways. But they can't blame the judgment that God is pouring upon them completely upon their parents. Why? Because they had an opportunity to repent. Romans chapter 1 says no man is without an excuse. They had the Jews there, and, and certainly Daniel was one of the most powerful advisors in the whole kingdom. They knew what he was saying. He was a man of great integrity. They could have followed after God. They had the voice of God in their midst. They had the messenger of God in their midst, the nation of Israel. And they could have repented, but they didn't. And I just find it amazing. Someone is 34, 35, 36 years old, and they're still blaming their parents for their life. Now, do their parents have an effect in their life? Absolutely. Parents, you need to give your kids the best chance to make it through life. That's your job, right? But if you're still blaming your parents, that's a problem because you have a new father. His name is God. And he's the perfect father. And you are responsible, even though your sins may different than your, be different than your parents, you are responsible for yourself. And I've seen it. I, I know people that are still blaming their parents. And it's like, nah, nah, stop. You, you, you need to stop. You, you need to deal with this and you need to move forward. God has given you the tools to deal with your parents. Oh, you don't know how bad they were. You know what? Forgiveness is something that God has made you able to do. And as you forgive people, you take your hurts, you surrender them to God. And what does God do with them? Romans eight twenty eight. He's going to work them for good in your life. And now you say, Lord, I didn't like it. And it was sinful. And the Lord says, yep, but you gave it to me. And you know what I'm giving back to you? I'm giving you an experience. And now you can minister to others that are going through the same horrible thing as you have. And you can use it as a tool for God. The good and the bad. And that's the amazing thing that God does. And so even though their sin was a sin of indulgence and their parents' sin was a sin of viciousness, they're still accountable. See what I'm saying? So he's bringing Babylon into judgment. And I want you to note, the Babylonians weren't, weren't about to let the Jews go back into the land, but it was prophesied that they would go back into the land. So what did he need to do? Put in a different kingdom. And so who did he bring along? His chosen vessel that he prophesied, a Persian, not a Babylonian, to set the people free. And so you see all this come together in God's plan. He goes on in verse, nine, or verse 6. He says, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. 
you did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. So I called you to punish them, but you went above and beyond, is what he's saying, to Babylon. Yet you said, I shall be a queen forever. Who allowed the Babylonians to gain power so that he could use them as a tool? God did, right? But now they're saying, I'm, I have this power. We, we're great. We're awesome. Nothing can touch us. But the fact of the matter is, unless you're trusting in God and you're being disciplined in your life, no, it's not going to last forever. These things you did not these things you did not consider, nor remember the outcome of them, nor then, or now then, hear this, you sensual one, who dwells securely, who says in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Presumption, I'm good. It's all good. No work on my part needed. I'm a sensuous one. I'm just living off the the victories of my predecessors. Pride much? No. (laughs) Yes, they do. Too much pride. But these two things shall come on you suddenly. In one day, loss of children and widowhood. They shall come on you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries, in spite of the great power of your spells. And so they were raised up and they were allowed to become powerful in order to punish his children. But they went above and beyond. And they had great arrogance and pride. They let their power go to their heads and they became merciless to the people and they took advantage of the weak and helpless. And so they made the colossal blunder of all time which continues today amongst all nations and all people when they find success. It's called pride, right? They felt they deserved and earned their good fortune. There was no one like them in their greatness and glory, and they would reign forever in their might and glory. But 1 Samuel 2, 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. I said to the boastful, Do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high, your power. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another for his purposes. You know, it's interesting to think, what, what would happen if they said, you know, if Nebuchadnezzar, you know, really turned around the nation with his faith and got to the point of saying, listen, the only reason we had victory was the God of the Jews. He wanted us to do this thing. Let's do this right. <laughs> you know, I don't know what would happen then, but it didn't happen that way because then Belshazzar comes along and he's just a, this privileged little brat, you know, having a party with the tools or the instruments of worship from the Jewish temple, and God punishes him. God's promises throughout the scripture reveal that ultimately, every nation that exalts themselves against him will be punished. 
And it's amazing because in the scriptures, man, sometimes it's, it's hard to get to a, a book like Jeremiah or a book like uh, Ezekiel, a book like Isaiah, because so many prophecies are just like, this nation's going down, this one's going down, this one's going down, right? But his desire is that all should be saved, and we don't know what the message was to them, but we know that every man is accountable before God. But anybody that exalts themselves against God is going against God's plan to save people. And he takes it very seriously. And Babylon is so prideful, they don't see the judgment that's coming. You know, in speaking of the last days, it says these things come upon them. And a couple of different times in the New Testament, it says like a thief in the night. But we're not those that are unaware of what's coming because we're supposed to know and see the signs of what is coming. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, the Jews or those people that should have known, the scribes, he says, you you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. And so he rebuked them for that. And so Babylon doesn't see the judgment coming in their pride. And so it is interesting that in the book of Revelation, which is yet future, this future kingdom is given the name Babylon because of all of its pride, all of its power, all of its presumption, all of its viciousness. And they don't see it coming. And so it's interesting in Revelation 18.7, it says, in the measure that she glorified herself, And lived luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. That's just pride and presumption. And that's what we see in the last days. And it's what's coming more and more often. It's amazing. In Europe, that sees itself as certainly post-Christian, Uh, we would say postmodern, and now recently it's called post-truth, the philosophy that we're living under in the world or the worldly philosophy. But um, people are going to nightclubs in certain parts of Europe and they're getting little chips put under their hands. And they are directly mocking God. And they can fill their chip with a certain amount of prepaid money and they go and buy stuff in the bar and they just use their little chip in their hand. And they're just mocking God. And that's that attitude. Ah! Doesn't mean anything to me. It's called scoffing. The Lord talks a lot about mockers and scoffers in the scriptures. Be aware. You know, every so often someone says, you know, uses the term, God damn it. And I'll, I'll back up. And they'll look at me, what are you doing? I'm like, If God damns that, I don't want to be anywhere near close to it, you know. (laughs) It's coming. God is faithful, but he's also very patient. And he wants all to be saved, and so he waits. And so this is the same idea. It's not going to happen to me, not going to happen to me. And we read in the scriptures what happens to Babylon in Revelation. Verse 10 And you felt secure in your wickedness and said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have deluded you. For you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. 
but evil will come on you which you will know which you will not know how to charm away and disaster will fall on you for which you cannot atone and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly stand fast now in your spells and in your many sorceries which you have labored from your youth perhaps you will be able to profit perhaps you may cause trembling you are wearied with your many counsels. Let now the astrologers, those who prophesy by the stars and those who predict by the new moon, stand up and save you from what will come upon you. And so he's mocking them. The Babylonians used as their cabinet advisors, I guess, is what we call them today. They're people with the statistics. They're experts. They use diviners or people that tried to read the stars. They use those that worship these false gods that, that would try to um, divine the future. They were known as a very occultic people with spells and charms. And he's saying, use your charms. Let's see how they take care of you in all this. And from what we know about the movement of the stars and the steadies of astronomy, not astrology, we know that things follow a predictable path in the universe, right? And it's amazing that God stuck a big old planet out there called Jupiter and Saturn to keep us from being just pelted by asteroids from deep space. You know, how did that happen? Hmm. Maybe God designed it that way. But people look up into the stars and they think the movement of the stars has something to do with their personal lives. Are you kidding me? But people still read horoscopes today. It's a ridiculous thing. And many Christians do it too. And they want to read these omens. Nope, trust in God. Don't trust in these things. Because the Lord would say, you're stupid. That does nothing. Nothing. Come to me. These occultic practices are empty. Verse 14. Behold, they have become like stubble. Fire burns them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. There will be no coal to warm by, nor fire to sit before. So have those become to you with whom you have labored, who have trafficked with you from your youth. Each has wandered in his own way. There is none to save you. 